0: I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day some of the world's most fascinating
1: founders share their stories with us before they've made it.
0: Their highs and lows, mistakes and triumphs, but always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz.
2: Here we have these diseases that are really really skyrocketing in this country, and we're all standing around scratching our heads. And, and yet we continue to do things with our food that is just um, really kind of scary.
0: On this episode of Unfinished Biz, you'll meet founder and CEO of Simple Mills, Caitlin Smith, who discovered how to make nutrient-rich, real food ingredients and run a successful business at the same time. Simple Mills' mixes, crackers, and cookies don't contain any refined sugar, high glycemic flours, gluten, or genetically modified ingredients. But as Caitlin will tell you, being the chief executive at Simple Mills isn't always easy or fun.
2: This is something that was really hard for me. So I'm an been- introvert by nature, cold calling, um, walking into stores and talking to people, doing a lot of demos, chasing people down in trade show aisles. Those were not in my natural comfort zone. And they definitely were not the top things that I wanted to be spending my day on.
1: Find out how Caitlin combined two-part science, one-part health, and a dash of deliciousness into Simple Mills' recipe, why the employee structure within her company is so important, and who she credits for helping her dream become a reality. Unfinished Biz starts now. Robin, I remember when I first met Caitlin, it was right around the the start of of Simple Mills. And, you know, the initial premise was just an almond flour baking mix, which Mm -hmm. turned into this platform, clean label brand that we see today. And one of the things that really stands out, reflecting on the history of getting to know Caitlin was She's never turned down a meeting, you Mm -hmm. know, anytime I reach out to her, she'll take the meeting and she's always very diligent about what, um, what she's doing with the business, but then very thoughtful questions about how she can improve and how she can continue to evolve with the brand.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me as well is just that degree of thoughtfulness because I think it's, it's hard, right? I mean, you're starting a business she have got so much to do on the day-to-day, and then that role is changing all the time. But she seems to really prioritize at least spending part of the day asking herself brutal questions about, you know, what is my role and how can I best serve the company? And I think, you know, not everybody does it. So it, it is interesting to see that that's something that she, she cares so deeply about. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that
1: because we caught up with Caitlin in Chicago where Simple Mills is headquartered.
2: I started Simple Mills about five years ago, and it happened after I cleaned up my diet. Uh, so I had taken out a lot of the processed food and a lot of the sugar, and when I did my, um, I just I just felt so different, and I couldn't believe the impact that real food had on my body, and uh, and so it got me really curious uh, about food and what it does to your body, and so I started doing a lot of research. Um, now in college, I actually double majored in business and biology and my favorite course was, um, was immunology so much. So it wasn't that- accounting. <laughs> it was not accounting. Yeah. I actually later became interested in accounting after starting the business. Right.
0: You're like, wait a second. I should have paid attention. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Well, it becomes a lot more interesting once it's relevant and you understand why debits and credits are interesting. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, immunology was just fascinating to me so much so that I took it both at UNC and uh, when I studied abroad at the National University of Singapore. And and so as I started digging into food, I started realizing how food impacts your immune system, um, which is something that just wasn't talked about at all when I was growing up. Uh, that um, that food can impact autoimmune disease and anxiety and depression, all of these things that weren't being talked about. And quite honestly, it made me a little bit upset and, and angry that, um, that here we have these diseases that are really really skyrocketing in this country and mm-hmm. we're all standing around scratching our heads and, and yet we continue to do things with our food that is just um, really kind of scary.
1: So how did that translate to starting a company to solve that need, as opposed to just buying healthier food?
2: Yeah, I um, I I precisely remember thinking I can't sit on my hands and know this. Um, this is this is really important information, and um, and I have to be a part of the solution and help change what what people are eating. Uh, And so I actually went home one afternoon. I was a a management consultant at the time uh, at Deloitte, and I sat on my porch, and I brainstormed probably 10 different ways that I could help change what people are eating, Um, everything from going and getting my master's in public health to starting a natural food company. So we know what I did, so I started... (laughs) (laughs) Started a natural food company, um, really. With this, I was gonna ask
1: you how the degree is coming along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, uh, my
2: my MBA is on hold, but uh, (laughs) but yeah, I um, really the idea was taking all of these categories that are typically very um, very delicious and convenient, uh, but are typically made out of tons of carbs and sugar. And instead of making them out of these ingredients that you want to be eating less of, making them out of simple ingredients that you want to be eating more of. So things like almonds, sunflower seeds, flax seeds, Mm -hmm. uh, but not making them taste like they're made out of those things. Uh, Making them taste like they're um, just awesome products that you want to be eating more of. So, uh, so yeah, we started out as a baking mix brand, um, started out with three, three muffin mixes. Our first store was, uh, the whole foods Ponce de Leon store in Atlanta, which is where I was living at the time and, uh, it sold the products in, um, those three muffin mixes into one whole food store and then another whole food store and another whole food oh, store. Wow.
0: <laughs> were you a trained baker or you were, you, did you have any yeah, experience? What?
2: No, uh, I was I was not a trained baker, which I think actually probably benefited me because I started from ground zero uh, and saying, okay, so if I were to make baking mixes out of things I would actually want to be eating more of what would I make them out of? So like almonds and ground up almonds. So then how could we make that into a baked good, which is a very untraditional thought process for either like a food scientist or a baker. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of like that. Sometimes you get like the beginner's mindset. It's it's (laughs) really helpful. Yeah.
1: Especially when you're building a brand around simplicity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: what did you do? So, okay. So how did you were a management consultant, but Hadn't start how did you start decide to start a business i mean what what was the first thing you did i mean you 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 weren't a baker but how did you know where to go get a product made
2: yeah i think it i think it's really helpful to talk to other entrepreneurs who are at like just the next stage um mm-hmm. and i this is advice i really commonly give to entrepreneurs um because they know exactly how to make that little step that you are about to take um so whether it's like like at the time it was like okay do i need do I register with the FDA or right. uh, or how do you actually make a food product? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of my friends was actually starting a gelato company at the same time. And so he told me, he was like, well, there are these things called contract manufacturers and they will manufacture your product for you. There are also commercial kitchens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I decided to start in a commercial kitchen until I could find a contract manufacturer that uh, that would co-pack for us, and uh, and so I did. I got a um, a commercial kitchen uh, about an hour outside of Atlanta. It's in a, it was in an interesting neighborhood, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would I would go and I would pack the product there from um i was still working and so it would be like friday nights i would drive in atlanta traffic um out to the to this neighborhood and um and pack product until you know two three in the morning
1: so you're still at the deloitte you were still at deloitte at the time as well
2: yeah i was still at deloitte at the time Did-
0: out of curiosity, did folks know that you had this side hustle where you were making baked goods like on Friday, Friday evenings?
2: They did. They did. Nice. Um, and I still, I still did my job very well. <laughs> <for the record. laughs> we, we never questioned that yeah, at all. Exactly. No. I'm a very conscientious person. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah. So would, um, would pack the product and I couldn't afford a mixer either. Like I really couldn't afford much of anything. And mm-hmm. so, um, I, the way that I figured out how to mix together the flowers is I would, Pour them all in like this food grade bucket, basically, or like tub, and roll it back and forth across the countertop. <laughs> that's
1: this your, is that, very scientific, that, and that's your mixer. Yeah,
2: and that was our mixer. And it turns out that commercial mixers don't so, work but, all that different.
1: Hmm. Nice. <laughs> but they don't get tired, like yeah, exactly, like like, like a person, though, so that's, right?
0: <laughs> It's a slightly more <laughs> scalable way. So, slightly. but before that,
1: what's the gelato company that was one step ahead of you at the time?
2: It's called Revolution Gelato. So, I think they just started exhibiting at um, they were at Expo East and oh, okay. Expo West this year. Nice. Yeah, yes,
0: yeah.
1: nice. So they're no longer one step ahead of you anymore. It,
2: you know, it's they have faced what a lot of companies face, which is difficulty finding the right um, the right contract manufacturers mm-hmm. to help scale your business. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And at this point, when you were actually making product in the commercial kitchen did you did you have a name at this point, or were you were you just making product
2: uh did have a name it okay. yeah um, the name was actually one of the first things that I decided on okay yeah, um, I wanted it actually to be called Simple foods. And in a stroke of luck, that, uh, that domain name was $3,000 Wow! (laughs) priced out, (laughs) priced out of the market. (laughs) And, uh, and so I was like, okay, so if it's not called simple foods, what would it be called? And, um, so I decided on simple mills and that domain name was $12.95, $12.95 it's
0: yeah. it's It's funny how these decisions somehow get yeah. made made for you in 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 retrospect
2: yeah it will, and I'm so grateful because um I, I think simple Mills is a stronger name for sure
1: absolutely yeah. and is the packaging the way it today that way it was when you first started
2: oh goodness no uh it uh oh it's it's evolved a number of times um it probably evolved twice in the first two years of the business. Um, the first two times it was designed um, in combination on like 99 designs mm-hmm. and in PowerPoint. Uh, it's better
1: than WinArt. Art. We've heard WinArt Art on this show. For sure. Oh. So you're at least on a whole nother level of beyond WinArt.
2: Art. Oh, see, I should have given that a try. Yeah. Who knows what, what would have happened. Mm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> It'd be very simple.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> was yellow part of the theme at the beginning as well?
2: It was not. So the second iteration of the packaging was the first to have a brand color, hmm. uh, and that was um, a very natural green color um, that, ironically, in the first round of packaging came out lime green because I didn't know that you had to test packaging colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but it was green to begin with. But um, I think I think for us... I think packaging has been a big part of our success, too. Mm-hmm. Um, packaging is something that I really underestimated in the early days of the business um, in terms of, um, of shelf presence, how you communicate about the product, uh, and all the traditional fundamentals around package design just really didn't know any of that um like for example um one of the things i didn't know was that um you typically have a hierarchy of things that you try and communicate um and the things that kind of scream out to the consumer first second third um usually like your um your logo um, or your brand name's number one number two might be appetite appeal uh and that you don't want to communicate too many things on the package Mm -hmm. Um, so when we had our first iteration of package design, you can see what I, uh, lovingly refer to as the United nations of claims.
0: Oh, <laughs> it was a NASCAR right, effect. right?
2: <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the consumer walks away knowing nothing. Right. Uh, and so I was really, um, fortunate to have a few people, um, at some point in the business who told me, Hey, you might want to take another look at the packaging.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but I think it's a common, like, uh, I guess, place that entrepreneurs fall down.
1: No, no doubt. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about how you started making the product, but how did you know how to sell the product? How did you know how to go about bringing a, bring a food product to market?
2: Oh, I think that was all just, um, hustle. It was, it was just get out there and talk to as many people as possible. Uh, go to Expo West. Uh, I shamefully did, Chase a few of our first customers down in the middle of the aisle. <laughs> no
0: shame in that. <laughs> that's also a
1: story that comes up a lot. Of people, yeah. you know, people grabbing people in the middle of the the it's, the aisle in Expo West and lovely, cornering people.
0: Lovingly referred to as some gentle stalking. It's okay. That's this, right. This, is, this is how this works.
2: <laughs> gentle stalking. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what happened. And it's and I have to tell you guys, like I think this is something that was really hard for me. So I'm an introvert by nature, mm-hmm. uh, and so cold calling. Um, walking into stores and talking to people, doing a lot of demos, um, chasing people down in trade show aisles. Those were not in my natural comfort zone. And they definitely were not the top things that I wanted to be spending my day on. Um, But as an entrepreneur in the early days, it's really important that you do um, the selling component, I think, is probably the number one most important thing. Uh, And recognizing that everybody has things that they don't want to do in the business and just kind of have to do them
0: (laughs) out of curiosity what what would you typically gravitate to
2: Ooh, i love um i love analytics and i love process and i love building i love putting building blocks together and solving problems Mm -hmm. um i love um i love bringing the team together which is something that i realized later in the process um but yeah i i don't think that cold calling is my passion
1: (laughs) So related to that, I mean, did you quickly hire somebody in sales? Like what did the team look like in the early days? Did you just start it by yourself and just kept doing it on your own. Like what did you do after you decide this is the company I want to start and this is who I want to sell it to?
2: Yeah. So first hire was a, um, a person to help me with demos. Um, and so she would drop product at stores. She also did store deliveries, um, drop product at stores, do demos. We did tons and tons and tons of demos Um, and mind you in order to do baking mixes we would have to spend a day baking before we would do a day of demos that's (laughs) right you're not you're not you're
1: not just taking it off the shelf and, and handing it out
2: no, we, it's literally double the work, Right. Uh, but we would do, um, literally I would spend my entire weekend demoing. So I would go from like a Friday evening demo. I could figure out how to fit three demos in on Saturday, which technically the whole food schedule wouldn't allow you to do at the time. But I figured out I could shave off like 15 minutes on every demo and fit in three, um, both days of the week. <laughs> Hustle. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, um, introduced, uh, that demo role, uh, and then it was probably about a year into the business. It was right after we raised our first round, um, that I introduced our first hires and our first hires were very, um, they were, they were more junior. Um, mm-hmm. so they were people who usually had, um, a couple years of experience out of school. Uh, and I, I think it's. Uh, it's interesting because I think this is like a, a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs face. And I don't know quite what the solution is for it because you have to get your business far enough along um, to attract your leadership team. Right. Um, but the problem is... To get the, it there. Yeah. How do it's you like, get it there? Because because people want to be on that leadership. Right. The first people who join are like, yeah. oh, I'm part of the founding team. I'm yep. going to be like the head of marketing. I'm going to be the head of sales. Uh, and a lot of times you can't afford to attract the talent that can scale right. with those it, positions.
0: It's a total catch-22 because I think everyone knows what they're trying to do. But it, you, you can't have one without the other. So, you know, it totally makes sense. But it's, yeah.
1: it's, you, it, oftentimes it's a team that just gets there through brute force through hustle and just sheer will and, and, and some, and natural born smarts, some yeah. combination of smarts and hustle, right? Yeah. But you brought up a topic around funding. How, so how did you start the business in terms of your own capital? And you mentioned a fundraise. Tell us a little bit more about that process in the early days.
2: Yeah. Uh, Oh wow. Um, so the early days I was saving every dollar that I could. Uh, I, Managed to save about $70,000, which involved uh, me doing every, like, literally would never take an Uber. Never. Mm -hmm. Um, Not even an Uber pool, but always public transportation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, even if I had like literally there were times when I had four suitcases. I remember coming back from Expo West by myself with four suitcases plus like three bags on top of the suitcases um, coming out of the L in Chicago when there's like ice on the ground. And you're not, yeah. che-
1: and you're not checking bags. I mean, that, that's there's a check bag fee. So you're carrying those things, right?
2: Well, so I, I had kept my airline status from being a consultant. Oh, so those good. were free. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. That's good. <laughs> and so I could have shipped them back. But no, I. I, I managed to take them with me. Um, but, so yeah, like you save every dime that you can, and so put seventy thousand dollars into the business. I sold my car, um, and you know, I you asked about my like a, a face down moment for me, or like the 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 time that was like the um, the scariest for me in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I came out of consulting and I had developed this awesome model, and this model told me that all of the money we would ever need was. $200,000, mm-hmm. uh, to, to fund and grow the business. And, uh, and so I had arranged this, um, this funding round, uh, with a family friend and, uh, for $200,000. And honestly, the terms in retrospect, they were very short-sighted on my part. And they, um, I'm not sure that I would own the company today or, or, um, really be that the company would be where it is today. if if we'd move forward with that. Um, But the the day that he was supposed to sign the papers, he called me up and wanted to renegotiate the deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents got really upset and they pulled money out of everywhere. Um, and my parents aren't wealthy, but they pulled $200,000, like, out of thin air. They reverse mortgaged their house, um, pulled it out of all of their accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> honestly, really terrifying because all of a sudden my parents are funding this everybody's business. A,
1: every, whole, everybody's all in at right. that point.
2: Everyone's all in. Uh, and by the time – and so at that point, like, started really raising money and realized that we might need more, like, a million, $2 million dollars and uh and so we did we raised we raised 2.2 million dollars in our first round um, we raised it from angel investors, um, and at the point where—how did
1: you find angel investors? The, I mean, so, like, <laughs> like, how did that? How did that even happen? Like, how do you, like, you don't Google angel investors, and I mean, I guess like, you can. I guess you could. Yeah, you I guess you could. can now. Yeah.
2: It's, but- it's kind of like the cold calling. Uh, you uh, you just talk to anyone who will talk to you. Yeah. Uh, and so um, the vast majority of conversations went something like this, where it's like, oh, um, well, this isn't right for me, but I know two people who it might be right for, uh-huh. and you say awesome. I'll talk to them. And, uh, and I think that a lot of things in entrepreneurship are kind of like this where, um, at some point your hard work creates some luck. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and my luck caught up with me one day when, uh, one of the women I had talked to was in the grocery store Uh, and standing next to her was a man that I had talked to, uh, and he turns to her and he asks her, what do you think of this brand on the shelf? And she says, I'm thinking about investing in it. Oh, wow. That's amazing. (laughs) And so he calls me up. And says, "Hey, I want exclusive rights to take a look at this deal for the next week, and so, yeah, we came together on a deal, um, but it's kind of like you need something to light the fire wow. and and that's what lit the fire and that's got, <laughs> and got us our lead investor, wow. yeah, it very lucky, um but by the time that we raised the first round, i mean what point
1: what point in time what year was this, and where where had the business gone at that point? what were you in multiple chains or just still in whole foods or
2: what was that? I think it was 2012. We yeah. were we were just in Whole Foods. Um, we had secured commitments for Wegmans and Earth Bear at that point, mm-hmm. uh, but we weren't yet on but the. Still shelf. pretty early on. Yeah, we still we but, were but, probably but, in like 50 stores. But you're
1: well beyond your 200 thousand dollar model that you built.
2: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well beyond that. <laughs> well beyond that. Yeah. And, uh, and at the time that we raised the round, I mean, I had maxed out every credit card that $200,000 was gone. I mean, we, oh, uh, we had a thousand dollars left. <laughs>
0: so, so I'm sure as you were building this, uh, you know, you were seeing, you knew where the money had come from for the 200 and you were seeing that that account was kind of getting whittled, whittled away. Uh, at that point, sort of, if you kind of go back to that time, how did that make you feel? Like what, where was your, where was your mindset at that point?
2: You know what's crazy is I don't think I was that scared. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I should have been. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: But you're too busy, just like in in the grind of things, right? And gotta yeah. and gotta
2: keep going. Yeah. It's like you just have like this, like just a very narrow focus and Mm -hmm. you can't see anything around it. Uh, and so now, now I can look back and see all of the risk around that and all of the risk around uh, my parents putting $200,000 into the business. Uh, and I don't know if, if I came across that today, I don't know if I would be able to make those same decisions. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: So what was
1: the turning point where you knew you were onto something? Was it, was it when the angel investors decided to invest? Like, Was there a, something that happened?
2: Yeah, I think for me it was. So within, within three months of starting to sell our, our, our products in Whole Foods and on Amazon, uh, we became the best-selling muffin mixes on Amazon. And it wasn't because we're doing what a lot of people are doing today, which is like investing a ton of money in Amazon ads. We weren't mm-hmm. investing. We didn't even know how to do Amazon ads. Um, bloggers were writing about us. And not uh, because we were uh, soliciting them to write about us, um, but because they found our products and they liked our products. And, um, and just overnight, we ended up at the top of the list for, um, for top-selling Amazon products. And I, I remember jumping up and down in my bedroom, which was my, uh, my office at the time. The worldwide uh, headquarters? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> worldwide headquarters. Yeah, here in Chicago. And, uh, and feeling like, this is going to work. But in retrospect, and it goes back to the same reason why I think I'd be kind of scared to have my parents put that money in if it were, um, you know, five years ago. And I know what I know now, um, because I can, I can look back on the business now and see that it's not one little thing that makes a business. It's a million tiny little things going right. And Mm -hmm. there's so many places, um, where you can trip up. Mm -hmm. And so what you're really just trying to do is get more things to go right than go wrong. Right.
1: And how do you, how do you go about doing that? I mean, is it through reading books, talking to certain people, building teams? Like what's, what's the secret?
2: (laughs) Again, a million tiny little things. But, uh, but I think that, I think the things that rise to the top of the list for me would be, um, one surrounding yourself with a really awesome team, um, because they're going to be the ones making the decisions and, uh, and deciding where, where things go and executing. Uh, the second thing would be giving them autonomy and control so mm-hmm. that they can actually go and do those things versus trying to make every decision yourself and, um, and trying to get everything done yourself. Um, another one, I think, is, um, is a certain level of attention to detail uh, and making sure that you keep your eyes on the things that matter um, because there will, be, there will be things that can trip you up, and you mm-hmm. do have to catch those things. Um, and so having things that can help flag those, um, those things that are going to trip you up um, would be there as well. So
0: how did you go about recruiting this high-performing team and surrounding yourself with great people? And to your point, there's this funky inflection point where it's like, I'd love to have them, but they might not be interested. And if it's already too late, they might not be interested. Like, How, do, how were you able to bridge that gap?
2: Yeah. So for us, it was those, um, those junior hires,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: the junior hires. So one of them was like an extern, which meant that he had a time clock anyways. Um, one of them ended up needing to move on because she, um, uh, she got sick and was no longer able to travel and she was in a sales role. Um, and, um, and so there were like different reasons why they were moving on from the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of given an opportunity to hire for that senior leadership team, um, at the right stage in the business. So right when we were starting to get the right amount of traction, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how to recruit, um, uh, we're, we've been a little bit unique in our recruiting processes and that the vast majority, we've probably used a recruiter on one or two of our, we've got 38 people now. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, very few positions have we used um, uh, recruiters on. Instead, we've done um, a lot of internal recruiting. So that first woman I talked about that does our demos or did our demos back in the day, her background's actually in HR. And so she's done a lot of our um, talent acquisition. Mm -hmm. Uh, For our leadership team, uh, I've always been the one to do it. Um, And so that means me, for any given leadership team role, um, usually spending two full days uh, plus on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. searching for my hypothesis of what the perfect candidate is
0: uh-huh.
2: and then I typically reach out to them and see um, see if they 'd be interested in a role with us uh, and I find that that's it's it 's nice because you get candidates that wouldn 't ordinarily bite at a recruiter right uh, and that are answering more based on purpose and passion and um, and excitement for the business
1: do you ever find it's a you know the the, the natural products industry is very much a community. Does it ever? Do you ever run into any challenges of reaching out to some? Uh, you may know the founder, CEO at the other company, and you're talk, You're reaching out to I don't know their head of marketing or ops or something. Have you ever run into an awkward moment doing it that way? You know,
2: because it's, it's sometimes funny. the recruiter
1: thing. It's like you have a bit of a shield right. of like, hey, it's it's I'm not I'm not the one calling. It's the recruiter.
2: You know, it's funny, and, I, and this kind of goes back to who we are as a company is a little bit different from other companies. Uh, so, because I came out of consulting, I, I value certain things that um, that not all entrepreneurs value, um, and and I think that you kind of build your um, you build your culture around the things that you value as an entrepreneur. And I've seen other entrepreneurs who value completely different things and have been stunningly successful. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the consistency of values within your organization that help uh, reduce the amount of friction. Uh, and so for me, coming out of consulting, I was really like, I, I love process and attention to detail and analytics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I hired people who, who love those things as well. And uh, it turns out that the people who really enjoy those things a lot of times come from big companies. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah,
2: And so we've hired, we've hired a lot of people from big companies, which is kind of unconventional. Right. Uh, but there's, a, what we found is that, um, there's, there's a number of people who are kind of disenchanted with the way that big food yeah. is doing things. And, uh, and so they're hungry to switch to something else. Uh, and so usually when we do outreach, it's to people at large food companies. And so there's less of That's the,
1: you're not uh, hiring from your friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. that makes cool. sense. So, you know, it's been a, it's been a good journey to date. I mean, you guys have built a a great brand, you know, any, I mean, it it can't all be rainbows. What are some of the things that have come up along the way that have been a bit of a challenge?
2: Yeah, I think, so one of the biggest ones is it, uh, this was my first time managing people Mm -hmm. and that was, that was a transition. Uh, it, um, I, I was really, really fortunate Um, early on in the business to meet our executive coach Mm -hmm. um so her name's laura she's um she's here in chicago and actually works with a number of other uh food companies as well and she um so she partnered with me really on leadership development but that doesn't mean that there aren't like face down moments in there where uh where you're like wow i've really screwed things up (laughs) and (laughs) and i think one of those moments for example was um it was probably three or four months after hiring our senior leadership team, which happened all in one like big swoop. By the way, it wasn't like it was spread over a number of years. It was like hired our VP of Sales, VP of Marketing, VP of Operations, um, all all at the same time, and um, and they were all kind of really frustrated with me for micromanaging them. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, especially when they've come out of a like you mentioned, they they came out of a larger corporations that were. More process driven than, than having, than, than having as probably as many different tactical items to deal with, and having a, a, a where you have a founder CEO that has a vision on how every single one should be done.
2: Yeah, yeah. How'd it, you, it, so how'd it, you work through that? Yeah. Would what, what
1: you and and how did they articulate their frustration? Did they just tell tell you about it or?
2: Yeah. So they told me about it. They told um they told our coach about it. So our coach actually works with our full leadership team. Um. So not huh. just me. Uh, and, um, and we also did three sixties, we do three sixties as well, um, to help with everyone's professional development. Um, but it, um, it really came out and, um, and it was really hard for me to hear, um, especially, um, because I think earlier on in my career, I kind of had this, um, this belief that I had to be perfect at everything, um, all the time. And, uh, and so it was, um, it was particularly crushing at the time. Uh, and And, but it was, I think some of the most exciting moments for me throughout the business have been where you kind of let your guard down and, um, and let yourself be vulnerable to, um, to the growth and, um, and to the opportunity to change and develop. And so, um, talked with them about like how I could be better at that and, um, and ultimately started giving them a lot more control and leeway. And, um, today I, I usually am just like, yeah, sounds good. Go for it. Um, run. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the other thing that I do today, uh, which I think I've shared with you, Wayne, is, yeah. that, um, is that we've like really clearly um, delineated whose decisions are whose. And I've tried to get as many of the decisions off my plate as possible um, so that people feel comfortable making the decisions themselves. And so then I can say, this is my input, but ultimately it's your decision. And then that way people feel a lot more um kind of ownership over the decision and that mine is just an opinion not an absolute right.
1: it's like you you, you explained it is almost like a pre-built decision tree if this question this is yeah. maybe describe that a bit more i, f- I remember you t- describing it it was fascinating
2: yeah so the it's actually in true simple mills form it's a spreadsheet <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: This, is this one that you created organically, or is this something that you borrowed?
2: Oh yeah, it's 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 created organically. Okay. All, yeah, all of our spreadsheets are internally created, uh, but it's um, it's literally just a matrix by department and by level of what decisions um, are whose decisions, and it. Um, so we've got like. Um, Board decision, CEO decision, um, leadership team consensus driven decision, which we try to keep those to a minimum, too, because that creates a lot of noise when um, you're trying to get four people to fully see something exactly the same way. Uh, and then you have VP decision, director decision, manager decision, et cetera. Uh, and then we actually had each department go through the exercise of listing out what are the key decisions uh, and who who can make those decisions and try to push those down and really question as much as possible. Does that really have to be made by that person or can it be made by someone um, someone else in the organization or um, someone at a, um, at a more junior level? Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a really good exercise for us so that like as we grow, because I think that's like one of the things that just starts to like overwhelm you as you grow as an organization is like all of a sudden you just have all of these decisions and they're all bubbling up. It's like, but ultimately people want autonomy. They want control. They want, they want to be able to feel like they have power in their role. And Mm -hmm. so. Um, and so give it to them and it makes everyone's jobs easier. And ultimately, like the other, the other thing that has to go hand in hand with that is, um, is hiring people who have strong critical thinking skills, um, and strong strategic thinking skills so that they're able to, to make good decisions. Uh, and so that's something that's really important for us is that, um, we don't necessarily want someone who will just push a button, but someone who will question the process and question, um, the way that we're doing things.
1: How do you hold people accountable?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I guess there's when like you let go, a, there's a number. There's a number of things when we when we let go of people. So, or? No, no, when
1: you when you're letting go of making every decision yourself. Yeah. How do you hold people accountable when if if Joe Schmo has the autonomy to make that decision? How do you how do you hold them accountable that they're making the right decision for the company? Yeah.
2: So. Um, I think it comes down to the organization goals and objectives. Uh, so for us, we we try to boil these down pretty simply and say like, okay, these are the um, the five goals for the organization this quarter. These are the five goals for each department for that quarter, and then prioritize them. Say like one, two, three, four, five, um, so that that way people know, okay, so this one's more important than this one. Mm-hmm. Um, or if there's going to be a conflict between uh, between some of those goals, that there needs to be a conversation had about it, so that we can reprioritize or um, or determine what um, or how we could achieve both, or if we need more resources to um, to achieve those those goals. Uh, but yeah, ultimately it comes back to those because then you can just say like, okay, did you or did you not achieve um, achieve this goal? And it's by the way, it's okay not to achieve a goal. Um, they're like, we want to set ambitious enough goals to where, um, to where not they're every not goal all layups, could, right. Yeah. They're not all layups. Right. Uh, and so, and so then there's, there's still more work to be done in some places. Um, I, we like to say like, it's okay to skin your knees, mm-hmm. um, because that's also how you learn. It kind of goes back to like that growth mindset of, um, of if you believe that like sometimes like failure teaches you more than just getting it right the first time.
0: Right. Just out of curiosity, as you push this decision-making down, how many, I guess, from a magnitude perspective, how many decisions were you kind of left with?
2: Yeah, I think I'm probably... I probably have... Five, 15 to no. 20, oh, wow. <laughs> 15 which, to 20, which is very few, actually, yeah. when you yeah. start adding them up. Uh,
0: that's one of the things that we consistently hear is that, you know, even in great success, it's just, it just adds complication and it adds the number of decisions that need to be made on a daily basis. So that number feels much more manageable than thousands. Right. But yeah. right. I think a lot of other folks kind of like, oh, my gosh. So that's interesting.
2: Yeah, Well, it's easy to catch yourself in it, too, because people come to your desk and say, like, hey, what do you think about blank? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then all of a sudden you give them an answer Mm -hmm. um, and then you've made the decision and they haven't. Right. And so it's a lot more powerful to say, like, you know, this isn't my decision. Right. Um, This is what like this is how I think about it. But
0: so do you police yourself on that or is that is there someone? Okay, got it.
2: Yeah, it does tell it does take some self-policing. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense.
1: So where where simple mills go from here. Where do you see the business and you know, five years from now.
2: Yeah, we've, um, we've got tremendous growth goals, even though we've already grown so much already. So we've, we've actually grown, um, greater than three X every year that we've been in business. Um, so it's been stunningly fast growth. Uh, and, um, and we've got a lot more coming. Um, so, um, more products, more, more distribution, uh, my, my end vision is I want us to be the company that represents simple ingredient real food um, across those center aisles of the grocery store
1: right after the break we'll be back with our guest Simple Mills founder and CEO Caitlin Smith
0: Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production you can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and on Twitter at unfin underscore biz maybe <laughs> subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice have feedback for us Leave us a review. And now let's get back to our episode with Simple Mills founder and CEO, Caitlin Smith. Was there a bet the company moment in, in the Simple Mills life, lifetime?
2: I know my parents, I mean, my parents both still work um, because um, they're, they're not ready for retirement. Uh, and so to have an additional $200,000 that like sets my parents back from retirement, right. mm-hmm. like an extra whatever number of years, right. um, that's just kind of a crazy thing and a crazy vote of confidence
1: well a lot, a lot of good stuff's transpired since that point what is there a particular hide point that sticks out in your mind?
2: yeah, I think uh one of my favorite moments was about two months ago, and we did um we did these scavenger hunts around Chicago <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh and people came back with all kinds of crazy videos i won't i won't tell all of them uh, but um but one of the things that they were asked to do as a part of the scavenger hunt is they were asked to do um, skits and we had five different teams because we have a big team now we've got 38 people uh, and and so we had probably five or six different teams and they all did these skits and they were so creative and they were such a strong fit for our culture uh, and they were so popular um, But also at the same time contains so many business elements, Um, like things that reference back to things that were happening in the business that it was just, it was incredible to me because it it showed me just how, um, how well informed our team was, like how strong our culture was, how consistent our culture was. It was just all of these things that, um, that I spend so much of my time on. So like what I spend my time on these days is, um, is really making sure that we get the right people on our team, making sure that we're building the right culture. Uh, making sure that we're supporting the development of our team, making sure that we're communicating effectively across the organization and um and to see that in like kind of like this one hilarious product, which is such a cool thing
1: nice I mean you know it's it takes so many forms, but it, you've mentioned process so many times, and I think it's almost like a culmination of a successful process like you've mentioned
0: at this point um what's keeping you up at night?
2: Oh. You know, growth is, uh, (laughs) growth is crazy. Um, it's always crazy. Mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, I was talking to the founder of Citadel and he, at one point, um, he, he, he asked somebody in his career what it looks like, the difference between companies that are succeeding and, and failing. Um, and the ones that are failing, it kind of feels like writing a um in a Cadillac going down the interstate 60 miles per hour with the wind in your hair um and what it feels like in organizations that are like succeeding and growing really fast it's like driving a race car down a neighborhood street and just when you're about to hit, like hit the curb you like turn really fast and you just knock it a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and
1: and doing that over and over again and you do it over
2: and over and over again and so it's like it's constantly watching for what's gonna break and so it's like it's making sure that you're continuing to support that top line so like the top line's just like continuing to like skyrocket and grow uh and so you're trying to make sure that you have all of the things in the base business to support it Mm -hmm. um because processes are constantly breaking um the like you're going from like uh you're having to like like switch contract manufacturers because all of a sudden you've like run out of line capacity and maybe you run out of like that month or that month, but you're not really sure because you're talking about like a, like 2% difference in growth rate. Uh, and, um, and so it's just like that craziness. It's like, that's fun. Um, but also you have, you have to watch it.
1: <laughs> so, um, simple Mills represents almost a throwback, um, stories that we used to hear a lot about mm-hmm. less so today where, A company like simple mills was started by you know she borrowed money from her parents her parents delayed their retirement put a reverse mortgage on their home really went all in along with caitlin into simple mills Mm -hmm. and she made it work i mean and it really came down to being extremely frugal from the beginning stages all the way through thinking through every single decision
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, let's talk decision trees. I mean, that's one of We you got a little bit here? Exactly. I mean, I I've never heard of a you know, a founder think so specifically about all the different decisions that their business needs to go through and, you know, what she was able to do in mapping out well, A, what decisions have to be made and then B, who owns that decision-making ability. I mean, I think that's that's got to be partly you know, from her consulting background, but it's interesting because what it does is it actually fosters such crazy accountability, right? You know exactly what you're on the hook for, and you also know who's, you know, who's supposed to be doing what. So it's, it's an interesting way to manage a business. It obviously works for her, and you know, I commend her on just the how innovative it is. So when she's
1: not making decision trees, it's probably no surprise to you that even when she's not working, she's still working. So when you're not driving race cars and <laughs> nipping at uh, curbs, what do you like to do outside of work?
2: Oh, um, I'd say first of all, I really I do really enjoy cooking. Um mm-hmm. for me it's very um very therapeutic. Like I will spend an entire Sunday and I'll cook like three different meals, put them all in mason jars in the freezer. Uh I also really love traveling. Mm-hmm. Um traveling abroad at that. Uh hang out with friends. Um Wine tasting, camping, hiking. Uh, Yeah.
1: Nice. So, Caitlin Smith, it's time for our signature game, Rapid Fire. You ready? Yes. All right. Favorite pizza topping?
2: Ooh. uh, Tomatoes.
1: Hated. Most hated pizza topping?
2: Uh, Sardines.
0: Thing that most people don't know about you?
2: That I speak French fluently.
0: What is your go-to airline? Delta. Guilty pleasure food?
2: Uh, peanut butter.
0: Favorite movie. Love Actually. Mm -hmm. Favorite book.
2: The Art of Possibility.
0: Who was the last person who you sent a text to?
2: Uh, My boyfriend.
0: Best Halloween costume you've ever worn.
2: Uh, a butterfly.
0: Top item on your bucket list.
2: Um, Greece.
0: Where'd you go to college?
2: UNC Chapel Hill.
0: What's your spirit animal?
2: Uh, A giraffe because they're tall.
1: (laughs) What is your happy place?
2: Uh, My porch.
1: Favorite TV show?
2: The office. Nice.
0: Cat person or dog person?
2: Dogs.
1: West coast or east coast?
2: West coast.
0: Uh, Go-to alcoholic beverage? Wine. Favorite sports team?
2: UNC. Tar Heels.
0: Mm. Most influential person in your life?
2: I think my coach.
1: One place you want to travel right now? Oh.
2: Nice. Wow, we got through a lot. Yeah, that was pretty. Well done, Kayla. Yeah.
1: Last question. What advice do you have for uh, aspiring entrepreneurs?
2: Can I make it a two part answer?
1: Absolutely. Sure. You can make it a three part oh, answer yeah. if you'd
2: like. <laughs> I think that the things that are required of you as an entrepreneur vary throughout the business. Uh, I think that in the early days of the business, it is, um, it's really important that you just get out there and hustle. And you get as much done as possible, um, that you honestly work every single hour that you can. Um, I probably didn't see, um, I, I didn't see my friends much in the first couple of years at all. Uh, and didn't date anyone, didn't do anything, um, other than work. Uh, but later on in the business... The needs of you completely change and it is no longer about how much can you get done um it's about how much can you enable other people um to um to achieve in the business um and it's not about you anymore Mm
1: -hmm. well said well caitlin thanks for joining us on unfinished biz
2: thank you for having me thanks
1: you've been listening to unfinished biz
0: i'm wayne and i'm robin we'll be back on the next episode with doug Bouton, president and coo of halo top the delicious ice cream everyone's gone crazy for, without all the sugar and calories. Doug risked it all to build Halo Top from scratch, but as many entrepreneurs learn along the way, even the best ideas are much, much harder than they seem to be in reality. We were so desperate for cash that Justin, uh, And I both applied for predatory lender
1: loans. Like, you know, the ones you get in the mail where it's like 20% APR. You qualify for 20 grand or whatever. I took a 35 grand loan out at, you know, 17% APR or whatever. Uh, Justin's credit was so bad, he got denied.
0: That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at Unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.